Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology while talking through our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Aya Osman, who's just finished her postdoc at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And she researches the gut microbiome and how this influences our brain. She looks at the gut microbiome in autism and addiction and works out what treatments we could maybe do to help people by focusing on their gut. So hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Beth, for having me on this podcast. My name is Aya Osman, and I'm a British Sudanese neuroscientist. I grew up in London, UK, where I completed my bachelor's degree in biomedical science. And then I went on to do a master's in toxicology and subsequently worked as a desk-based toxicologist for Public Health England for two years. And then I started my PhD in neuropharmacology at the University of Surrey. And once I completed that, I moved to New York in 2018 to start my postdoctoral training. And a common theme of my research has always been gut-brain connections. For my PhD, it was in relation to depression. For my postdoc, it was in relation to addiction and in relation to autism. Your research looks at the gut microbiome, and this is something that we're hearing a lot more about now. Can you explain what exactly it is? It's a very hot topic at the moment. So the the term gut microbiome refers to the trillions of microorganisms living along our gastrointestinal tract. And so these microorganisms are not only bacteria. The gut microbiome refers to bacteria, virus, and fungi that live in, in our gut. And the term gut microbiome also encapsulates the genetic material of these microorganisms because They're very active metabolically. They help us break down certain foods, absorb certain foods. And so all the genes involved in those processes are encapsulated in the term gut microbiome. So how does the gut microbiome and what you've just explained, how can that influence the brain? That's a really good question. And one that actually a lot of people are still skeptical about in the field because the gut is so far physically from the brain. So how does it influence the brain? So we believe the gut and the brain communicate with each other through this mechanism called the gut-brain axes. And while the exact mechanisms and routes of communication between the gut and the brain still remain to be fully understood, we do know that, that there are several proposed routes of communication that have been quite well studied. And these include signaling through the vagus nerve, which is one of the key nerves between the gut and the brain, signaling through the immune system, which is actually a really big component in the signaling because the gut actually houses about 70% of all immune cells in the human body. If you think about it, there's bacteria in your body. So of course, the immune system is close by trying to regulate that. And so based on how much immune cells you have in the gut, any changes in your gut bacteria or immune cells can alter the composition of the microbiome and vice versa. We believe that the gut microbiome signals through these immune cells to the brain via cytokines, which are released by immune cells. So, for example, one cytokine implicated in gut-brain signaling is interleukin-17, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokines. And in general, it's the pro-inflammatory cytokines that we think signal between the gut and the brain. And then of particular interest to my own research, my research is starting to kind of touch on the immunology as a, a signaling mechanism 
currently the majority of my focus is signaling through neuroactive metabolites that are released by gut bacteria. So gut bacteria, when they help us break down certain foods like dietary fibers, there's byproducts that are released and some of these are neuroactive. And so there's a specific class of compounds called short chain fatty acids or SCFAs. And they're released by our gut bacteria when the gut bacteria break down complex carbohydrates, dietary fibers. And these short chain fatty acids, the three most abundant are acetic acid, butyric acid, and propanoic acid. And all three have been shown to alter behavior in some shape or form. And so I focus on signaling through those and the mechanisms. But we also know that certain foods like polyphenols, when they're broken down by the gut, they also release neuroactive metabolites. So some of my work touches on polyphenols and their metabolites and how the brain signals through them. That's so interesting. And so with this axis, does it go both ways? Does the brain also signal to the gut and that changes the gut microbiome? Exactly. So it's a bi-directional communication mechanism, the gut-brain axis. There are people I'm actually collaborating on a project now to figure out the other way around. How does the brain signal to the gut to alter gut wall permeability, composition, immune system? So it is a bi-directional communication. Do we know the reasons why we have evolved to have this mechanism? Why is this a good thing to have? They actually evolved to live symbiotically with us for a reason because it's beneficial to them. They get certain foods and whatnot through what we eat, but it's also beneficial to us because there's a lot of foods that we actually can't break down. We don't have the genetic material to digest and absorb those foods like dietary fibers and other complex carbohydrates. That's why bacteria are really beneficial to us because they help us break down those foods and get the nutrients we need from them. So that's why they live with us. We benefit them and they benefit us. And how can we study this? So I know that your work involves animal research. How can that help us understand what's going on? What are some methods that we can use? Lucky for us in the gut microbiome field, the recent advances in sequencing technology and bioinformatics has really given us a strong tool to be able to study the gut microbiome. So when I talk about sequencing, there's two key sequencing techniques that we use to study the microbiome. So essentially, you take content of the microbiome and you isolate the bacteria and then you sequence that bacteria to see what type of bacteria we have. So we use 16S sequencing, which is basically sequencing of only the 16S ribosomal subunit of bacteria. And that region is very specific to bacterial species. So if you sequence that specific region, you can have an indication of what bacterial species you have in the gut. The more advanced sequencing technique that's come about quite recently is shotgun metagenomics. And shotgun metagenomics differs from 16S basically because it sequences the whole of the bacterial DNA, not just the 16S ribosomal subunit. And so when you sequence the whole bacterial DNA, not only do you get information about which type of bacteria you have in the gut, but also their functional output. So what those bacteria were in the process of making and doing, which for us who study the brain, we're actually very interested in the functional output because that's what's going to reach the brain. So that's why shotgun metagenomics is... It's the slightly more expensive technique, but the more informative one. So we have these sequencing and bioinformatics to study it, but we also have animal models, which is simply amazing. We can use antibiotics, treat animals with antibiotics to kind of knock down the microbiome or deplete the microbiome. And then you can 
look at the effects of no microbes on animal behavior. Of course, antibiotics come with their own set of problems of target effects. You know, people are not big fans of using the antibiotics to study the microbiome. So another way we can do that is germ-free mice or germ-free rodents. So these are mice or rodents that are raised completely sterile of any germ. So in like an incubator and they're raised that way so they, they shouldn't have any microbes in their gut. And then that way we can kind of introduce specific microbes that we want to study to look at their effects or look at the effects of no microbiome completely on behavior and uh, molecular endpoints. So those are the techniques and technologies we use to study it. So you just mentioned that the mouse model, they develop in an environment where there's no germs or anything. Is this the equivalent to when we speak about, oh, kids should be out playing and getting dirty and things and having germs. Is that is that why we need to have that when we're younger? Yeah, so you've kind of touched on something really interesting there. There is a, a theory developing in the gut microbiome world, which is that we're missing specific microbes now because we're living in these industrial cities and we're not, you know, in the countryside rolling around with cows and dogs or whatever. So because we're getting exposed to less microbes because of our more sterile way of living, there is a theory that these missing microbes play a role in the increases in autism that we're seeing in allergies. You know, certain microbes missing can increase certain allergies. You're right that there is evidence to show that certain microbes missing can affect our health, but the germ-free technology didn't quite come around because of that exact concept. It was just, you know, with science, you always want to knock out something and then study the effect of knocking it out or knocking it in. So it's kind of like a knock out the microbiome and see what happens. But yes, it does allow us to answer what you just touched on there, what happens when we're missing specific microbes. Links back, for example, what you just said there from the autism field, we do know that the rates of autism in some studies are reported to be lower in countryside regions where people have exposure to animals and soil and whatnot. And the rates tend to be higher in cities where we're not exposed to as many microbes. Some of your research looks at the link between addiction and the gut microbiome. Can you explain how the gut microbiome could be linked to addiction? My PhD supervisor, Dr. Drew Karali, is actually one of the leading names in that field, just because like you said, it's not well studied and nobody would really think the microbiome would play a role in addiction but so to be able to answer that let's take one step back and talk about what addiction actually is so addiction is characterized by cycles of out of control drug use or drug intake despite negative consequences and cycles of abstinence and relapse and the reason all of this comes around is because there's an accumulation of changes or neuroadaptations that happen in the brain with repeated drug use. So initially, when you use a drug, it actually acts on the older parts of our brain. When I say older, I mean evolved first. So this is like the basal ganglia, our reward circuitry. That's where addiction starts. It starts in the basal ganglia, and then it causes neuroadaptations there over time, the more that you use the drug. And then over time, the changes actually start to occur more towards the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And so this is the region of your brain that's involved in executive function, decision-making, cognition. And so when that starts to become compromised because of the drug use, that's where you kind of see the out-of-control drug use because now you're 
prefrontal cortex isn't as engaged and you're not making as clear decisions. So all of these neuroadaptations occur as a result of repeated drug use. And these neuroadaptations can take the shape of changes in how our neurons communicate with each other. So the synapse between neurons changes in drug addiction. We also get changes in how genes are expressed in our brain. So the regulation of gene expression gets altered following repeated drug use. And then we also get changes in epigenetics, which basically means not changes to the DNA, but to how the DNA is wrapped you know, around histones and folded away and organized. So repeated drug use affects basal ganglia over time that changes come to the prefrontal cortex. And those changes are in the form of changes to gene expression, epigenetics, and synaptic function. Now, the gut microbiome, through its metabolites, like short-chain fatty acids, we know that they're neuroactive and can enter the brain and have been shown to enter the brain. But some of their actions actually involve regulation of gene expression. So some of these short-chain fatty acids I mentioned, like acetate, can regulate how genes are expressed in the brain. They can influence epigenetics. And so the way we're looking at it is the gut microbiome, through its metabolites, when it's intact and normal and healthy, kind of acts as a mediator or a regulator of brain gene expression and epigenetics in the brain through all these metabolites. Now, if you take a drug like morphine and it comes and it changes epigenetics and gene expression in the brain, your gut microbiome should be able to like, regulate those changes to some extent, right? So you'll get an external insult into the brain, but your microbiome is regulating what's happening. If you have an altered microbiome, an unhealthy microbiome, in the case of our studies where we knock down the microbiome or germ-free, you now no longer have this internal regulator of brain gene expression, right? So it's compromised. So when you do get an external insult, the changes in gene expression epigenetics are likely to be more pronounced because your gut microbiome is compromised. And so the way we're looking at it is if we can target the metabolite or the microbiome in addiction, we might be able to prevent a person's progression into addiction by slowing down some of these neuroadaptations. If we target the microbiome during, say, when a, an individual is in abstinence, so they've already taken the drug, but they're trying to stay away from it. If we target the, the microbiome during that time, can we increase their chances of not relapsing? Can we improve or help mediate some of these epigenetic changes and gene expression changes that happen because of the drug use? So that's the way we're looking at it in the addiction field. Same with autism field targeting the functional output of these microbes, can it affect brain health in a beneficial way? So would that mean if you are targeting someone who has an addiction in this way, would that mean when they took the drug or had alcohol, their experience of it would be different or would it be their desire to use it again would be different? How would that work? This is where it's kind of open to anyone who studies the gut microbiome to tackle different aspects of addiction because addiction comes in cycles, right? So you can look at targeting the gut microbiome in general before an individual has even started using drugs so that when they do use a drug, they are less likely to get addicted as quickly because their microbiome is healthy and it's helping mitigate some of these changes. Where I'm interested in using the microbiome is for relapse because 
relapse is one of the biggest problems in addiction. Most people can stop, but then they'll relapse an hour later or two hours later. So my interest is during relapse, when a patient goes to see their doctor and their doctor is giving them, you know, in the case of opioid addiction, methadone as a replacement therapy, you're not just targeting the drug addiction, you're taking a whole body holistic approach and also looking at maybe their diet, what this patient is eating. Should they be trying to eat foods that increase short-chain fatty acid release so that these short-chain fatty acids are entering the brain, having their therapeutic effects in terms of gene expression, and the individual is now less likely to relapse. So it's targeting it as part of the treatment as well as as the prevention. So we know that even before people start using drugs or something, we know that there's going to be groups of people who are going to be more likely to develop an addiction. Do they, from development, have a different gut microbiome? Could that be one of the things that's contributing to that? Yeah, excellent question. So yes, it's looking at the microbiome might be able to answer why we have variability and who gets addicted and who doesn't. Could that variability be because of the gut microbiome? Could the variability in who gets addicted and who doesn't be related to their microbiome composition? So my PhD project actually touched on that topic right there. And now I kind of want to extend that question during this part of my career. I actually looked at how diet in early life, so what the baby is eating, can affect the development of certain receptors in the brain that play a role in addiction, play a role in mood regulation. So if a child is eating incorrectly or hasn't got the right microbiome composition from early life, does that then affect the development of the brain in a way that predisposes them to be more likely to develop an addiction later because they have a low mood or they don't have the, the receptors that they needed for to be resilient or have an improved mood aren't, just didn't develop correctly because of diet and the microbiome. So yes, I'm interested in early life factors that affect the development of the brain that can predispose an individual to develop an addiction as an adult. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Is our microbiome developed or decided just from things we're exposed to or is there also a genetic component to it? So are there people with certain genes who are just going to lack certain bacteria because of that reason? The microbiome, similar to the brain, it actually develops mainly postnatally, i.e. after birth. There are some studies wondering if, if the microbiome starts before birth, but currently the status quo is we know it starts to develop after birth and your first exposure or like first exposure to microbes is through when you're born vaginally, your mother's vaginal microbiome, any fecal matter, that's your first inoculation of microbes. And there's a difference between the microbiome of children born vaginally and children born cesarean section. The ones born cesarean section tend to have more microbes that are found on skin as opposed to what you'd get if you were born vaginally. So early life is really important for the microbiome because it's developing, it's very dynamic in the first year of life. It fluctuates and it continues to fluctuate for about the first five years of life. After five years, your microbiome is, it takes on an adult composition and it becomes quite hard to alter after that. You have to do something really major like antibiotics or a drastic diet change. So first five years is when it's fluctuating and developing just like the brain. That's why we think they influence each other. But yes, besides early life factors like mode of birth, breastfeeding versus formula feeding, that's going to influence 
what age you're weaned out, which was a lot of my research, will also influence your microbiome composition. But now we also know genetics do also affect microbiome composition. And my recent paper with the Shank 3 genetic model of autism, I did see that at baseline in these Shank 3 deficient mice, they did have an altered microbiome compared to wild type mice. So from my own research, I can say that I think that the genetics does also affect the composition of the microbiome in addition to environmental factors. I suppose that's what we usually find with most people we speak to or thinking about, you know, changes in the brain or behavior. Yeah, it's never just one thing. Nothing is just caused by one thing. I really like like the direction my research went in since starting my postdoc with Drew Karali and he kind of introduced this concept of gene by environment interactions in autism and addiction and so for my autism project I took a genetic model of autism and then I looked at the microbiome as an environmental factor so how do genes and environment interact to result in deficits that you see in addiction or autism. Could you explain a bit more about that study you did in the mice to look at the gut microbiome in autism? Yeah. So as we just said, you know, both genetics and environment play a role in most neuropsychiatric conditions and autism is one of them. And there's been a lot of research and great strides made in identifying the genetic risk factors contributing to autism. So several studies, I mean, now it's about 102. I know it's more than 102, but it's 102 single genes that we know are associated with autism or high risk genes for autism. And many of these genes that have been identified actually play a role either in synaptic functions, so how our neurons communicate with each other, or epigenetics, actually, epigenetic regulation. And so that kind of gives us an idea already of what is altered in autism. It's a highly heterogeneous condition, and in some people it can be problematic. And it's in those people that we're trying to focus on improving symptoms. Genetics, we have a good idea of what contributes to autism with these 102 genes, but environment, we're not so sure. There's a lot of research into maternal immune activation. So if the mother, while she's pregnant with the child, especially during the second trimester, if anything activates her immune system, that can result in the child developing autism. But then also there's the genetic factor in that too. So in terms of environment, we just don't have as much research as we do in the genetics. And so I wanted to look at the microbiome and alterations in the microbiome against a specific genetic background and how that results in ASD. And so when I joined Mount Sinai, we had the SIVA Autism Center. I was lucky enough to get a fellowship from them and get to use some of their genetic mouse models that they had. And one of them was the Shank 3 knockout mouse model. So Shank 3 is a gene that encodes a protein which acts as a scaffolding protein in the synapse of excitatory neurons. So the brain, the human brain, has a beautiful balance between excitatory activity and inhibitory activity. And what happens in autism is you get a misbalance of excitatory to inhibitory transmission. And so the gene that I was interested in is involved in excitatory transmission in the brain. So mutations in that gene actually result in a condition known as Phelan-McDermott syndrome or PMS, And patients with PMS have autism. And so that's why we took the Shank 3 gene. Actually, Shank 3 accounts for about 0.5 to 2% of all cases of autism. And you might think that's low, but that's actually a really high rate for a single gene. 
So it was a good model to work on. And so I took that model and the first thing we did was just profile the Shank 3 mouse at baseline. For behavior, we found at baseline, they show social deficits, which is a hallmark feature of autism. We found that baseline using 16S sequencing and shotgun metagenomics, I saw that they had a dysregulated microbiome at baseline. And then we found that they had low levels of that short-chain fatty acid acetate that I mentioned, all at baseline. So the next set of experiments we wanted to do was, okay, what happens now if there's an environmental insult to the microbiome in these mice, right? So to do that, we used antibiotics and we put these mice on antibiotics throughout development, essentially. So from postnatal day 21 until postnatal day 60, which is adulthood. So they were drinking antibiotics or control the control group just drank water. And so what we found was that after antibiotic insult on the microbiome, the Shank 3 mice, their social behavior became worse. It was exacerbated. So now they were like almost socially avoidant. And the microbiome changes obviously became exacerbated. But what was really interested was the levels of short-chain fatty acids, acetate, dropped even further after antibiotics. And so this is where I joined the project and the idea was, okay, well, acetate seems to be changing with the microbiome in Shank 3 mice. What happens if we just give these mice acetate in their drinking water for six weeks, considering they had these low levels? And so we did just that. We put them either on acetate alone or acetate in combination with antibiotics. And the reason we did that is we wanted to see if acetate can have therapeutic effects independent of whether your microbiome is intact or not. Because in humans, each and every human is going to be different. And we wanted acetate to be able to work in X patient who has this microbiome composition and Y patient who has this other microbiome composition. So six weeks of either acetate alone or acetate in combination of antibiotics. And we beautifully saw that it rescued the social deficit or reversed it which was, I mean, I, I saw this and I was like, okay, I have to keep repeating this. And I kept going and going, but it was nice because I saw it in both the acetate group and the antibiotic plus acetate group. I then obviously wanted to do other behaviors to see if those were reversed. And so I looked at anxiety behavior using a few paradigms and it did alter anxiety-like behavior, just not as robustly as it did with social behavior. And so obviously the next question now is mechanism. How is acetate doing this? And in that paper, we touched upon mechanism and we saw that acetate replenishment for six weeks results in like really robust transcriptional changes in the brain. In particular, I chose the medial prefrontal cortex to look at because that's the region of the brain really important for social behavior. And we saw acetate results in really robust transcriptional changes there enriched for immune function which kind of gives you an idea of how acetate might be having its therapeutic effect. Also, synaptic function was quite heavily enriched in the genes and metabolism. That's what the project basically entailed, profiling at baseline, finding a target, and then targeting that target in, during replenishment. And the reason we wanted to do it via drinking water and not an infusion into the brain is to kind of mimic what would happen in clinic. You're not really going to take a patient and infuse them. You're more likely to be like, here, and drink this. So the, the end result of this research to me, really, basically, the, the, the gut microbiome and autism field is really all over the place. There isn't a specific microbial group that has been identified. And that is because of this inter-individual variability in microbiome composition. And so our theory was if we take a specific genetic cause and look at the microbiome in that 
and then other people take another gene and look at them. Eventually, we might start to build up an idea of shank through forms of autism are associated with a decrease in lactobacillus, whereas two is associated with these bacterial alterations and these metabolites. So we hope it will start to build a clearer picture of which microbes are altered in which forms of autism. Yeah, I looked at that paper and it was just amazing. I just, yeah, <laughs> the idea that you can give the mice this this supplement and then they change their social behavior. I was yeah. very And that's impressed. been shown with certain short chain fatty acid. Propanoic acid actually is the opposite, where if you give too much of that, we, we've seen autism-like behaviors, but negative ones, you know, um, explosive behavior. And so short chain fatty acids in general, it's not a surprise that they alter behavior. It's just now mechanism. So one of the things I'd love to do, I measured acetate in the serum and I did see that it was increased after acetate replenishment. I'd love to trace that into the brain. Where is it going? Where is it being incorporated to continue the mechanism studies? Yeah, that would be awesome. So then what are the steps from this finding to then have this as a treatment for humans? So what's the process? So you have this really cool finding. So you mentioned then you'll work out the mechanism. And then, yeah, so how far off is it until this will be used? Yeah, so, you know, First of all, it would, we'd need to do some toxicity and safety studies just to see that this level of acetate isn't accumulating somewhere else and having negative effects. So that would be the animal studies that would be done. In terms of taking it to clinic, we've kind of already started looking into that in my paper where I actually got serum samples from patients with PMS to kind of see if they have this reduced level of acetate that I saw in the mouse model. We did see reduction in short-chain fatty acids in males and not females that seem to correlate with certain ASD clinical measures. I'd like to increase that N number for my clinical studies. So I think it was like an N of 32. Ideally, you want N of 50 and up to really be able to get robust ideas. So another step would be validating this in the human population that they do have these reductions in short-chain fatty acids. And then, yeah, from there with the toxicity studies, you can, in preclinical, you can start a clinical trial. The first foray that I had into gut microbiome stuff was hearing about, like, fecal transplants. Have you heard about those? I feel like you have told me about this for some other reason. It's bringing... Oh. vague bells okay first fecal transplant is literally what it sounds like i don't know exactly how it works but it's a poo graft and they've done these crazy studies where they'll give an anxious mouse the poo of an exploratory mouse and like a happy mouse and then the anxious mouse becomes happy and vice versa so there's like these wow. crazy influences in terms of the gut microbiome and they've done a study i'm pretty sure that it was in this direction where they gave a mouse or a rat, sorry to the neuroscience and behavior people, mouse or rat, I can't remember if it was a mouse or a rat, but they gave this rodent a fecal transplant from a human depressed person and then it made the mouse depressed. Oh my God. That's that wild. And they made the connection that's the gut microbiome? Yeah, because that's the only thing that changed. Because when um, Aya said we're more gut microbiome cells than we are human cells did you know that <laughs> that we're more yeah, because gut cells I, because than i human. because of all my fecal transplant knowledge <laughs> <laughs> that we're more that who than are, we are who us. are you <laughs> yeah. but you know what who i mean are we are more them than we are us no and i think that there's also budding evidence about 
mental health and like how you react to things and things like a diagnosis like autism that I was talking about. At some point, those things kind of get woven into the fabric of who you think you are, but then it's actually just these little microbes in your belly. Yeah, or even, so I grew up in the country, you grew up in the city. Even that, we have all have super different gut microbiomes. Yeah, yeah, I also heard someone saying that people who grow up in farms and stuff and just around animals, they tend to have less allergies and do better in a lot of ways because they have a more diverse microbiome. So you're probably healthier than me. Maybe that's why you're so optimistic. <laughs> It's just got those happy farm animal. I have my sad pigeon and rat (laughs) exposures and raccoons. Shout out Toronto raccoons. Raccoons Um, in Toronto? Oh my God, they're pests. They're pests. (laughs) Skunks and raccoons. I feel like in recent years, I don't know what happened if it was COVID, nature healed, but every time I go back, I feel like I see skunks almost every night, raccoons almost every night. They're a true menace. But the reason that I know about the fecal transplant is because, which I think I've talked to you about, Beth, but, you know, as a underpaid grad student, I was looking for a little side hustle, you know? And What? No, I did not know this. You did not tell me this. I haven't told you about this. Well, there's a website that, like, put out a call for, I don't think they called it fecal transplant. Oh, it was called like stool donation. And it was like, you can make $500 a poo. What? And I think That's it's a called, lot. I think it's called human microbes, if anyone's interested. But let me share my experience to save people time. Or I don't know <laughs> if this will make you want to do it. But anyway, so there's like a pretty extensive application, like a Google form that you have to go through. I submitted that a long time ago, probably three years ago now. And I still haven't donated a single poo. But basically, because they-, they said... You haven't met the criteria? Well, I met the first round of criteria. So then like a year later, they were like, hey, it looks like you could be a donor. The next steps are that you have to like prove that you're physically fit and you're mentally healthy or something. And you have to send us five days of pictures of your poos. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like a Google in a Google folder. And I was like, damn. So anyway, that was the next step. And then I got an email back from them that was like, we've had 30,000 applicants. And they were also like, this also isn't working really well. Yeah, I don't think it's going that well for them. But yeah, so I'll let you know. But that's why I know so much about (laughs) fecal transplants, because I was really trying for that to be my side hustle. And sometimes I still see it online where people are like $500 per donation. And I'm like, Good is it luck. a legitimate like, you're organization? Gonna... Is it like I'm a university? What is it? <laughs> I don't think it's a university. I think it's <laughs> a private thing, but they look really legit. But then I did get scared because it was just like a Google Doc full of very intimate photos that like maybe... <laughs> I think I might have taken it down because I got scared. How did you prove you were physically and mentally fit? I think there was some kind of mental health questionnaire potentially but then physically fit I don't know what they wanted I think they wanted bikini pics which is sketchy <laughs> what did but then they I was like hey, but yeah they did this doesn't sound like what you didn't send them bikini photos did you I did <laughs> what 
It's what fine. else did you give them? What I said. <laughs> my social security oh my- number, all my passwords. <laughs> oh my god. I feel like that's some breach of something. How do well, they know from the I, photo? I'm if sure you I signed something. I think it was because because of like some evidence that if you have some physical or mental difficulty, then that could be because of your microbiome. So they're like, we don't want that passed on to whoever's. I don't know who's the who's the people <laughs> taking these transplants. I don't know about this. I don't. <laughs> All um, of this well, for only five hundred dollars. No, no, no. Per donation, Beth. So imagine. So, oh, so you can donate like, more than once. Yeah, like every but you day. Did, but you did all this, I don't know, make money, save lives. Looking for stool donors, $180,000 a year. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> did you have your face removed from the bikini pic? No. No. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's let bikini, me know. If it's think, a bikini picture. You have to let me know if this is shocking to you because maybe this is just something to do that I think that that's weird that someone would ask for all of that. You know, medicine. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I was like, this is weird. But I was like, what are they going to do with this? Like, what's the worst that could happen? It's released. Okay. You know, that's a girl's girl's Instagram. What can I say? No, I guess that's true. I suppose it's the bikini pic with all your personal information. That's what I would be concerned about. But then, yeah, what are they going to do with it? Yeah. Like Duolingo was hacked. (laughs) The Chinese company who delivers my groceries, they've sold my number. I get a call from China every day saying your UPSP package has been delivered in Chinese. So what can they do to me now? What should we take from this research? Should we change our diets? And, you know, you can go to the pharmacy now and get probiotics. What should we take from this because I went to the pharmacy the other day and they're like, oh, the probiotics that you can get here, they're not really going to do, maybe not do all the stuff they're claiming to do. So what should we do to take this research but not be sucked into any sort of, I don't know, hype yeah. be out there about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and th- we didn't really get to talk about this, but this is where the polyphenol research was really interesting for me because polyphenols act as prebiotics, right? So up to 95% of polyphenols are not digested and absorbed by us. They're for the gut bacteria. So when you eat foods that are rich in polyphenols, you're already doing that step of trying to take a prebiotic or probiotic. So my advice would be, just because I know from the research in the prebiotic and probiotic field, there's a lot of research into do those prebiotics and probiotics actually penetrate the gut and get to where they need to get to to have their beneficial effects we don't know for sure but we do know with diet that yes if you're looking at what you're eating if you're eating foods that are high in dietary fiber to increase levels of short chain fatty acids that's great look at foods that have polyphenols in them that's things like fruits vegetables grapes nuts certain whole cereals chocolate cocoa red wine So I would advise more, and I've started doing this based on my research, is what am I eating, right? And you can't target one food group. You can't be like, I'm just going to eat dietary fibers from now on or fiber. It, It needs to be a whole dietary approach. So make sure you're incorporating polyphenols in there, fiber in there, nuts and what. Look at your diet and what you're eating because the effects on health and brain and behavior are real. But don't get caught into the hype of, things that have not been confirmed yet that they work. So that's pill form, prebiotic and probiotics. I would move towards taking that in through my diet as opposed to a pill at this stage. 
But yeah, I would highly recommend. So if you look at the polyphenol paper, the polyphenol derived bioactive BDPP, um, if you look at the composition of that, it, it's literally Welch's grape juice. So even though the sugar content, you can get sugar-free Welch's grape juice. I've actually got it in my fridge now. I drink that. That composition also had resveratrol in it, which you can buy over the counter. So I've started incorporating resveratrol into my diet. And it has grapeseed extract, which you can also buy from Holland and Barrett's. And all of these are high in polyphenols that are good for you. So I've started putting these into my diet and eating them. If people are feeling anxious or depressed, some of the tips are really focus on exercise and, and also focus on diet. And people do say that eating well and everything does really help. And would that feeling be connected to the microbiome? Would that be connected, do you think? Well, we know from the IBS field, irritable bowel syndrome, which often comes with anxiety and depression, that treating IBS helps with the feelings of anxiety and depression. So based on my research and where the field is going, I do think what you're eating can work to improve your mental state. Like I said, it's never one factor alone. It has to be as part of a holistic approach where, yes, you're exercising more, you're reducing sugars and refined food in your diet. There's a really be beautiful paper review by John F. Cryan that came out a few months ago on diet, microbiome and mental health. And he has a beautiful table in there of which foods have been associated with depression. It's really a Western diet and which diets have been associated with improved mental health and that's things like Mediterranean diet but no 100% I think that it should be thought about when you're dealing with anxiety and depression what am I eating am I giving my brain the correct nutrients it needs to build dopamine to make me feel better to build serotonin so yeah I think that there is it's a definitely worth looking into the biggest thing to look at it is you know your brain needs neurotransmitters it needs building blocks where do we get those building blocks from it's through our food and what we're eating and what help the first place when you eat it goes to your gut and that's where all these microbes are that you have more microbes in your gut than you have human cells in your body so it's a bigger entity than you living in you right so of course it's going to dictate so much to do with human health and now we're, we're seeing it linked to yeah neuropsychiatric conditions and mental health but it's also linked to cardiovascular health diabetes cancer People in the cancer field are looking at the microbiome as a potential therapeutic. So, yeah, I would say give it some deep thoughts. You know, don't just look at it like what you're eating doesn't matter. It will play a role in how you're feeling. So one of the things that I really liked about Aya's research is that I think a lot of the times when we hear, especially these things that are super hyped, I feel like we've heard about the gut microbiome and about how it's really important to have these prebiotics and probiotics and whatever, the mechanism gets really lost. And I've seen some researchers who are in this field kind of recommend the way I did the importance of just like eating whole foods and eating a good diet for your gut. But then it feels like, I maybe as a skeptic, I'm like, how does it work? Because we kind of already know that eating fruits and veggies and a nice varied diet is really good for you for a lot of different reasons, right? But this idea of the changing of the, the genes and like how the transcription's working, and I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand how all of that worked, but I thought that was really interesting. And it definitely convinced me that there's truly something going on with the microbiome in relation to the brain. And it's not just, oh yeah, of course, you're just eating healthier. So, you know, 
there's good things happening. So I don't know, do you feel like you have experience with eating food differently or feeling like your body and especially your stomach are super connected to to your mental state? Well, since speaking to Aya, I've been obsessed with the gut microbiome. I feel like everyone around me is getting so annoyed. (laughs) I was like to my barista, I used to get full fat milk and I was like, I need low fat now or oat because of the gut microbiome. (laughs) Wait, why can't we have full fat milk? Well, I went and I looked at the paper that she was mentioning that talks about diet, the best foods you should eat for gut microbiome, and it's kind of the Mediterranean diet. They have low-fat milk. Oh. So I've switched to that, and I've been eating a lot of blueberries and grapes, but grapes are out of season and they're really expensive. But, yeah, anyway, I've been going a bit crazy since listening to Aya, and I don't know if that was exactly (laughs) what I should have taken from the episode. But I do find when I eat well, I do feel better, regardless of whether I'm focusing on just eating polyphenols or not. I do find it helps my mood. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's where it's hard to say, oh, it's definitely the gut microbiome. Because if you're eating like crap, it makes sense that you would feel bad because your body's not working as well. So that direct link to the brain, I think, is interesting. And I'm, I'm convinced that it exists. But I feel like the first time that I had an experience of really feeling like the gut and the brain are super linked is that a good friend of mine who will remain anonymous for this podcast, they were essentially like struggling with IBS. And we really thought that it was something physical that had happened, that they were like allergic to something and, you know, tried all these physical things like food mapping and trying to make sure that this person was not eating this, not eating that. And like, it was a very stressful time for them from what they told me. And then randomly one day I had an ad for this app that was a hypnotherapy app for people with IBS. And at that point, basically this person had tried everything and we talked about it multiple times and they were just basically given up and been like, this is my life now. Like every time that I'm uncomfortable or anxious, I'm just going to be in a terrible state. And then I sent it to them and I was like, oh, maybe this this could help. Last ditch effort. I don't know if you want to spend like $10 a, a month on this or whatever it was. And then they tried it and they got back to me and they were like, I'm fine now. And I was like, what do you mean? So they did hypnosis. I tried one of the meditations and it was like the hypnotherapy thing. Three, two, one, like you're in this space. And then imagine that you're in a potions shop and like this potion says that my stomach is going to be calm and perfect and whatever. And then you drink the potion and you feel it going into your stomach. And it's a visualizations type of meditation, I guess, but it's supposed to be like hypnotherapy. I don't really know what counts as hypnotherapy, but then it worked. And I was like, what the heck? Cause this person had been struggling with it for so long. And I know that it really caused a lot of stress in their life. And it seemed so physical. And then just literally visualizing drinking like a little potion. They were like, I'm good. I was like, what is this? So this was fixed by the other direction, the brain influencing the gut, not the gut influencing the brain. Yeah. You think? Yeah, that's so I think crazy. so, yeah. This is going to sound unbelievable or like we made this up, but we really didn't. We didn't talk about this before. I have a friend <laughs> who also had IBS and because I didn't know that's what the story you're going to tell, Ava, who also did, they did hypnotherapy. I don't even know if it was in an app or if they went to some person and it fixed it. 
wow, we're like snake. No, I'm serious. These are purely anecdotal, by the way, to anyone who wants to try this. But yeah, that's crazy. Because I feel like people will struggle with these things for so long. And you'd never think that someone could heal. It's like shamanism. Like it doesn't seem like it's real. Write to us if that's happened to you. We'll start start (laughs) collecting stories or side project. So what are you excited about what's coming up next? So yeah, now that I've wrapped up my postdoc papers, secured a grant, I'm trying to secure a bit more funding, but I'm on the job market and the Osman Lab will hopefully be opening somewhere soon. Stay tuned for that. Amazing. I feel like it would be the best lab. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you know any students, send them my way. But no, it's definitely nerve wracking, but I think I'm ready for it. And I have an idea of what my research aims would be. It's just about getting the position now and getting the funds to execute those research questions. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher. She's the Australian one and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mindsmatter.